0: Podcast. This is Curtis here with you again, uh, just another follower of Christ, doing what it is that I feel he has put into my heart in continuing with this podcast. And I would invite anybody else who's feeling the same stirrings, uh, you can use the Founded on Christ podcast at gmail.com to send in anything that you feel the Lord is telling you to give. Um... Continuing from last week onto this week with the lions and lambs, uh, we are going to focus a little bit more on the lamb side of things and what that means for us. Uh, to begin with, I pulled up some of the scriptures that that use the word lamb <laughs> in them, and surprise, surprise, most all references of lamb uh, is in a reference to Christ, and so... I think starting in Isaiah 53, and I think if you really wanted to, you could, you could put right, ne- right next to the chapter heading of 53, Christ is the Lamb, because this whole chapter, it's a beautiful chapter about the role of Jesus Christ, but in many ways it shows his Lamb-like attributes and why he is called the Lamb through this chapter. Starting in verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one from his way and the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted if he opened not his mouth he is brought as a lamb before the slaughter and a sheep before the shearers is dumb so he openeth not his mouth there's strong allusions there to the the lamb sacrifice lambs were used not only as the paschal lambs But also there was, I believe, a daily and nightly sacrifice at the temple where lambs were sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so there's strong ties here through this whole chapter, especially with what I just read about a lamb being humble and submissive and meek and being used as, because of that, as a sacrifice for the wickedness and the sins of the people. John chapter 1 Verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you forth as a sheep in the midst of wolves, but be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now this is an implication or injunction given from the Savior to the, his apostles, telling that they should go, they should be lambs themselves, not that they should be... Uh, inept, but they should go with these lamb-like attributes, and I love how it says being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I think there's some implication there. A lot of people I know that I've I've talked about, like sheep and lambs, they're actually very smart animals, but they're very submissive to their masters, to their shepherds. 1 Nephi 14, 6. Therefore, woe be unto the Gentiles if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God. I found there's there's almost this beautiful symmetry in this verse about hardening yourself against a lamb, right? A lamb is a very soft and entreating uh, animal. It it requires, I mean, it it by nature is submissive it is by nature the opposite of hardened and it's interesting that the woe you know covenant curse is upon us (coughs) if we harden ourselves against the thing that is the most unhardened which is not only a lamb but christ himself and so i started thinking about what it means to be a lamb I think, let me see if I have that verse handy. Alma 7, yes, Alma 7, verses 22 through 23. And I feel like this kind of defines the attributes of a lamb that only Christ exemplified, but that he asks us to exemplify, just like he asked the apostles and the 70 to go forth as, as sheep or as lambs. I think this is what we're talking about almost seven twenty two through twenty three and now my beloved brethren i have said these things unto you that i might awaken you to a sense of your duty to god that you may walk plainly before him that you may walk after the holy order of god after which ye have been received And now I would that ye be humble, and be submissive and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, asking whatsoever thing ye stand in need, both spiritual and temporal, always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever, whatsoever things ye do receive." That, that is a, a power scripture. <laughs> you want to break those things down. And I find it interesting. You go look up the words humble, submissive, and meek in the dictionary, and you will find part of the truth of those words, but they lose their power when taken in a neutral stance like, you know, Miriam Webster does. But when you take them with the power of the scriptures, and Christian living, we find that those, those attributes, those three words, they are some of the most defining features of those that follow Christ, because they were some of the defining features of Christ when he came in his first ministry. So continuing with this injunction that he's given us, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: if my people, which are called by my name, Shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And I love that there's a little bit of seek my face in there because you know how important that is to me. Ether four. 14. Come unto me, O ye house of Israel, and it shall be made manifest unto you how great things the Father hath laid up for you from the foundations of the world, and it hath not become to you because of unbelief. Behold, ye have rent the the veil of unbelief, which shall cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness, and hardness of hearts, and blindness of minds. Then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid from the foundations of the world for you, yea, when ye shall call upon the Father in my name with a broken heart, and a contrite spirit, then shall ye know that the Father hath remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. So this concept of a broken heart and a contrite spirit that rends the the veils of unbelief, that is, we say those words a lot, and I use them a lot here on this channel, because those are important words, those are the covenant words that the Lord gives us I'm even just going to read that. It's 3 Nephi 9, yeah, 3 Nephi 9, 20. He shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. So we, we use that, those words a lot, but the broken heart and contrite spirit to me are some of the most lamb-like qualities that both Christ exemplified and what he is asking us to do. And that's why not only did it was it required of him to come as a lamb so that he could perform the atonement, it required him to be submissive, meek, and humble, but it was also so that he could teach us how to do it. Even the mere fact of Christ's condescension to come as a mortal being to be born is an example of that aspect of being contrite, being humble, being meek. You know, And as a fun little side note, I found that when the, the term swaddling clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, that's very specific because that implies that he was wrapped in the same clothes, the same a uh, specified, sanctified uh, cloth that they would wrap the lambs that are born for the Paschal sacrifice in. Christ as he was born was wrapped in the same clothes that those lambs used in the temple sacrifices was wrapped in. And There's some beautiful symbology there. There's some beautiful fulfillment of prophecy in that. But continuing on, the the aspect of this is for us to learn these things ourselves and exemplify them. And so, just as last week I talked about being bold and being, you know, not afraid to stand for truth, being powerful and strong, pointing to the Savior, now we have the flip side of that where we need to be, softer in our approach. And I think both aspects of this, strong and soft, are needed for a disciple of Christ. To emphasize the softer part, DNC 121, verse 41, and I love this very much. It says, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only, but by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. Those are lamb-like attributes persuasion, long-suffering, and continuing on, 42 and 43, be by kindness, pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving be times with sharpness, there's the lion, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, there's the lamb, lest he esteem thee to be thy enemy. So I love that you can look at Christ's ministry, his earthly life, and you can see examples, both examples of lion and lamb in the, you know, the microcosm, the smaller uh, areas of things. You can find both aspects, but you can also apply it to his larger ministry that this first one, he was a lamb. He came submissive and meek. He had not yet fulfilled all the things that God had in store for him. He needed to accomplish those things and now he gets to come in the second coming as a lion in great power and glory but this aspect of being humble to God and following his instructions is probably the most <laughs> Dramatic thing we can take from Christ's life. How do you think Christ knew that he should stay at the temple and talk with the wise old men you know expounding the scriptures to him when his family was leaving how do you think christ knew that he should belabor his time and wait for his brother-in-law to die so that he could raise him from the dead instead of coming right away how did he know with one man to just With his words, heal his sight to see. With another man, he had to make some sort of clay and rub it on his eyes for him to see. All those things, aspects, yes, of his own intelligence and righteousness and good living, but also submissive and meekness and holiness. There's wonderful examples throughout the scriptures of Christ taking time to be alone with his Father in heaven and receive instruction from him. Uh, One of these things, this has always stood out to me, it's very interesting, Luke twenty three verse eight through eleven, and when let's back this up just a little bit. So this is right around when Christ is putting through his mock trial, Pilate, wanting to shuffle off responsibility for Christ, sends him to Herod, saying, "Ah, this is his jurisdiction. I'll let him take care of it." So. Luke 23 verse 8, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard of many things of him and hoped to have some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. This is really this is so interesting to me because before this and after this, Christ, though he's not, I wouldn't say he's overly chatty, but he talks to Pilate a lot. And he gives him some pretty bold and straightforward answers. But here he is, he's sent before Herod, and he doesn't say a thing. He is completely silent. And that—that that is an aspect of Christ that is not seen very much in the scriptures because most of it is recording what he's done. And I find this a wonderful example of him. He must have been, of course he was, because he was perfect, but he must have been instructed from the Spirit, from Father, to not say a thing to Herod. And I wonder if that was hard for him or not. We know that he did it. But I wonder if there was a part of him that desired to, to, to teach Herod, to call him out on his wickedness, and to have him Repent. And obviously the best thing for him at this time was for Christ to remain silent. I find that very interesting, but I also find it very wonderful that Christ was obeying, he was being humble and submissive and meek to to the Lord, to his Father. Now, probably the paramount aspect of this for me is when Christ is in the garden. You know, with each of us as we progress in our knowledge and understanding of the scriptures and of Christ there is a strong temptation and possibility for each of us to get caught up in our own pride about the things we've learned to caught up in our own magnificence you know in our own greatness because of how awesome we are right and here Christ who is he's on the precipice of glory. He is, you know, a day, you know, away from completing the atonement, rising up to his father in glory for completing his work. You know, he is he is less than I think 12 hours away at this point from saying it is finished. And yet there's still temptation for him to go his own way and to do his own thing. I'm going to read all three accounts of this from Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, because each one, a little bit different, but each one, I think this is probably one of the most important submissive moments in history. And he was withdrawn from them. This is Luke 22, verse 41. And he was drawn with them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Matthew 26, 38. Thus he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. And then Mark 35 and 36. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto Thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what Thou wilt. Here in this moment, and I hope not to cheapen those words with my own here, but He, Christ, He's wonderfully intelligent and strong in the Spirit. And there's a part of me that reads this and says, Father, I think I see a way that I don't have to do this and I don't want to do this. I can't imagine going through something as p- hard as, and as painful as what you went through to, to rise to where you're at. I really would like to do this another way, but I've come this far by listening to your voice and obeying your voice. I know that is the only way I can continue, and I will submit to that if it be your will. Here is probably the most lamb-like attribute, the most lamb-like lesson that any of us can take in everything that we're doing. We can get very caught up in what we want to do. Um, oh, I've experienced it with this podcast. <laughs> There's times where I've you know, really wanted to fit a round peg into a square hole. You know, I feel the the desire need to, to say something, and I have. <laughs> not that you may or may not can tell from listening, I have thrown away whole recordings before getting through, getting finished, and feeling completely like I had done wrong. <laughs> it wasn't what the Lord had wanted me to do, and gone back and re recorded, uh, trying to listen to the Spirit and what it is that it's telling me to do. <sighs> I know uh, I made mention this last week, but. I, in a lot of people like to point to Christ overturning the tables and the the you know cleansing of the temple as an aspect of Christ where he was very hard and bold and, and make no mistake that was very much a a more bold aspect of his lamb ministry. But when you see how, when he comes in his glory, how he will have the earth heat as an oven and roll up as a scroll, how this earth will become as a sea of glass and a giant Urim and Thummim, and how the wicked will be cleansed. You see that him cleansing the temple was very much an aspect of him being meek. If Christ had the ability to jump off the temple and have angels catch him, as Satan was asking him to do. That was in his realm and power as a son of God. Cleansing of the temple by use of upturning tables and a whip was him being very judicious in the amount of power that he displayed. So here at the end of this two part series, we have two injunctions, two aspects of Christ that we, as followers, need to harness and develop. We need to be able to be bold and strong, spiritually strong, resolutely, not boastfully, but resolutely, humbly strong in the Lord, but at the same time, be easily to be entreated, seek to understand, Be seek to influence others by persuasion and long-suffering and love, showing forth the Christian attributes of being humble, submissive, and meek to our Father in Heaven. It's only through the practice of those things that we'll ever achieve, probably not the best word, but we'll ever accomplish what it is that the Lord has for us to do. That is how we will perform our missions here on earth for the exemplifying of both of those things, holding them equally in our hands, not overemphasizing either one, but seeking to develop both. And if we are, if we find that we are leaning to one of those, when da- undoubtedly all of us are, we have one of those things a little bit stronger than the other, it's a good reminder that we should develop the other side as well. Being bold or being meek. With that... Give my testimony and my love for my Savior. How grateful I am for His sacrifice. How grateful I am for His example. And I ask you to seek His face continually in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.